Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night influences. Here's your host, Max Cantor. Hi, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to Talking Late Night. I'm Max Cantor. I'm your host, and I can tell you right now, I'm in a great mood because before this show, I ate a lot of peanut M&Ms and I ate a lot of Twizzlers. So I'm ready to have a really, really good show with a really, really good guest. Because today on the show, I have a guest who is not only the co-owner of Automatic Improv, he's not only piloted shows for CNN as a correspondent and an associate producer, and he's a video journalist for them as well. And he not only currently works as a writer for Cartoon Network, but... He was also the hiring and training coordinator for Best Buy from October 2005 through 2008, according to his LinkedIn page. So please, without further ado, please welcome to the show, Andy Cohen. Welcome to the show, Andy. Oh, thanks, man. You reminded me I should probably uh, take a look at my LinkedIn. <laughs> well, <laughs> Maybe update some stuff. Well, I, I hope you didn't think that. I was I was looking you up and I found your LinkedIn page and I was just scrolling through all the awesome things you had done and then I saw that thing from Best Buy and I'm like oh I gotta include that. I mean, people yeah, have man, to know. store 501 off of Barrett Parkway. It was a pretty <laughs> uh, pretty big store. It was a Class E Best Buy, which uh, they don't make them that big anymore. Oh. I, I'm sure that's probably not what you were wondering, but it's true. So you're working for like an endangered species of Best Buy for a while. Well, you know, uh, back at the time when I got there, it was like right before um, like digital stuff was really taking over. You know, like YouTube videos existed, but like not everybody had like uh, internet was as DSL was coming around and getting in the houses. So at that time, people still went to stores, but it was uh, falling pretty fast. So I got out of there and then started doing jobs that were more fun, which was great. <laughs> and I, I got to know, what's it like sharing a name with a celebrity? Well, that was an interesting thing because Andy Cohen sort of became uh, the guy who hosts Bravo. He mm -hmm. became a celebrity a little later. Uh, when I first was coming up, the only other Andy Cohen was a football coach or assistant football coach, I think, out of Iowa. So that was the only other Andy Cohen. And then all of a sudden, people started letting me know, at which point, of course, uh, I was very um, upset. Not upset, but I was just kind of like, well, I guess he gets my name. And then I, uh, when I was on HLN piloting shows, I actually went by Andy Diamonds, which is the nickname I got when I was a 19-something improv student over in Atlanta. Because, yeah, you got to differentiate yourself. Got to make it pop. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, when I was telling people that I, were ha I was having you on the show, I think every single person who I talked with was like, oh, my God, it's that guy from TV. And I was like, no, mm -hmm. that, guy, that guy has an H. You know, it's very different. Yes. It is very different. Uh, the H is the Jewish spelling, and then it's like we have the Irish spelling. However, there's not a whole lot of C-O-E-N Cohen. There's the Cohen brothers, who obviously have made some amazing movies, but otherwise, it's not a very common way to spell the name. It's true. Yeah, I agree. But to just jump into the show here to start learning a little bit about you and your comedy background, let me ask you, uh, growing up, what late night shows influenced you and your comedy? When I was a kid, I can really trace my love back to a few. I would say that uh, during, for a short while, E would do reruns of Conan O'Brien's show. And I thought it was incredibly funny. I really enjoyed it. It would just be on at like 7 during the day. But I was like a 14, 15-year-old kid coming from school. I really wasn't into the late night thing. I would mostly 
grew out of watching Nickelodeon. I love SpongeBob and Fairly Odd Parents. And then I started watching Conan O'Brien. I thought he was really funny. I, however, started watching stand-up a lot, and then that would usually lead into The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and my, who I absolutely loved. But then my favorite was Stephen Colbert, and The Colbert Report is my favorite show of all time. I was so into the show that I watched the, the first episode when it first aired, and then I wanted it to succeed so bad that the next day I watched it twice in reruns. <laughs> I don't really know how Nielsen ratings worked. But I wanted to give it that view to, so that it I could make sure that they'd keep making more of it. Exactly. And who knows? I mean, maybe the 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 people upstairs, you know, at the the higher ups, they were looking for that only one more viewer and you helped them make that show become a success. I mean, we don't know. Yeah, they were probably gonna cancel it except for me. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna take all the credit for Stephen Colbert's career. Uh, you should. I'll put that, I'll put that in your bio. That I write it for the show, right. I'll say Andy Cohen, savior of Stephen Colbert's career. Also, Best Buy hiring training coordinator. Yeah, right. yeah them both. They're about uh, both equal. So, did you, when you were watching Conan, um, how did you transition from Conan into stand-up, or were, was it just two separate things that you f- fell in love with? Well, for me, you know, uh, the whole stand-up thing uh, or watching it, I just, um, I didn't really have any desire to be a comedian when I was in school in high school I thought I was gonna be an architect and I spent a lot of time working with architecture clubs and I just had a lot of fun in that environment and I went to these nerd camps there's one in Valdosta Georgia called the governor's honors program and you get put with a bunch of nerds and then spend all day you know um, designing things and I really enjoyed that quite a bit when I went but during that time, I was also like, I'd go home and I'd watch stand-up comedy. I'd go home and I'd watch like Conan, and I would always stay up late to watch The Daily Show and Colbert Report because I thought they were so funny, and I got to learn about the world from a great perspective, and they would take all of this interesting stuff and combine it down and give you like really thoughtful perspectives. So I'm going to college. I've been accepted to this place called Southern Poly, which is a really good architecture school in Georgia, and I went to orientation, and I had a panic attack, and I decided that... Like, what am I doing? I don't want to do this at all. And uh, I realized, I was like, well, what do I love? And I was like, I love comedy. I love going home and watching stand-up, and, and I love watching Daily Show, and I want to be the next Stephen Colbert. So those were all the decisions I made when I was 18, and I just, like, sort of had that wash over me and said, this is what I want to do. And it was great because it was just something that I knew so well, something that I watched so much that that was what my personality was kind of becoming. You know how you kind of emulate the people you really like. So I was just like, how much can I, how can I be like them, you know? Right. So when you were in high school and in your mind, you're preparing, you know, I'm going to be an architect, I'm going to be an architect. Were you still like being funny? Were you making jokes by emulating Stephen Colbert? Or would you consider yourself not funny until you decided when you were 18, this is what I'm going to do? No, I I, um, liked architecture class because I could just hang out and make jokes with my friends all day. So that was such a fun thing for me. And I realized that later that I liked being funny. I liked making people happy, being the center of attention. And I would just always goof around. And the cool part about it, you could also goof around there and build stuff. So that was just kind of a double whammy for me because I loved Legos growing up. So I, I loved that. And I didn't love the work. My parents would buy me architecture books. Like my mom bought me this book for my birthday. Like, hey, here you go. It's like all the coolest architecture in like Europe. And I was like, ah. I never read the book. I didn't even open it. And it was one of those things where I realized, this isn't what I wanted to do at all. What was I thinking? But 
you know, it's hard when you're a kid to, when you have infinite possibilities, who do you want to be? And then I also grew up in a suburb of Atlanta, a ways away. People didn't really, I had no idea the opportunities that were open to me at the time when I was kind of choosing a career, you know? So it was one of those things where you kind of like fall into who am I in this school? You know, I'm just trying to like meet a girl that likes me back and, you know, be kind of cool and go to a party or two. I didn't really know. I didn't, I wasn't born with these big dreams or anything. I did have a, a question for you. I wanted to know if, um, sure. while growing up, if you ever felt pressure um, from either your family, your friends, or your environment to not pursue a career in the arts, and that's kind of what pushed you away from comedy. So I was growing up with a interesting family. I'm a middle brother. My older brother is 11 months older than me, and he was valedictorian of high school. He was an incredibly smart person. I have a little brother who's about four years older than, younger than me, and he was the talented, cool one. He was in a punk band. He can play nine instruments. He was just like the cooler version of me. You know, I'm kind of alternative. He was alternative, but also awesome. Chicks loved him. And then I had a little sister who was great, and she was super funny because by proxy of living with all these older, weird boys, she ended up getting a great personality. I was not very smart and pretty uh, directionless. I was in special ed until seventh grade. And, you know, my personality and like sort of took a hit from being compared to, you know, my smarter brother. And I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, I, I don't, I tell people this, I don't feel like I had a personality up until the end of high school. I kind of like floated around with friends. I, I tried a bunch of stuff. Uh, I taught kids how to sword fight for a little while. I made a uh, chainmail armor, and I was really into like fantasy things. I, but I was like legit sword fighting. I was really good at it. And then I would just kind of like read books, and uh, I don't know. I didn't really know what I was doing. But when I decided that I wanted to be a comedian, you know, I like come back from my orientation at college. I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm having an epiphany, the first one in my life. I'm like so thrilled. I'm telling my mom. Like, you know, I'm just going to be a stand-up. I'm just going to do comedy, and it's going to be great. I'm going to be the next Stephen Colbert. And she was like, uh, okay. And I told her that I don't need to go to college. I can just drop out and do comedy because that's what it takes. She said, no, 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 you have to go to college. I was like, ah. Because I was already in college, but I was going to this technical school that was great at architecture, but didn't really have that much else, uh, construction things, but nothing I really wanted. So... I signed up for some political science classes because that's what was available. That was kind of was like, well, they know a lot about politics. I'll do that. And then I started when I was at a Best Buy, you know, uh, checking people out, working in the front desk. I was deciding I was going to do stand-up. So I started reading about it. I would buy uh, autobiographies like uh, Born Standing Up by Steve Martin was one of the best books I ever read about it. And that really taught me a lot of lessons. And I sort of started building a stand-up set after watching my famous comedians and kind of kind of writing jokes, sort of like, I'm like, oh, I love Mitch Hedberg. Maybe he would write a joke like this, or Dimitri Martin would write a joke like this. And then I just uh, found whatever excuses I could to do stand-up. I did a, the first show I ever did, I did, I did about 30 minutes at a Las Palmas Mexican restaurant because a guy named Gary, who I worked with at Best Buy, played music there. And he gave me some time. So I went up there and I did my jokes and it was so fun. So my friends came, 
my mom came, and it was like I got a good reaction, and I was just thrilled. I was over the moon. I had such a wonderful time. My friend Rachel came up to me and said, Andy, you were actually good. So I was like, what? I'm good. But uh, everybody else was just trying to eat Mexican food. They were surprised. Uh, I did it. I did stand up at a coworker's uh, batch. Um, what is it? When a kid's born, uh, they have a shower for it. Uh, you know what I mean? Baby shower. Oh, but so I go to. Yeah, I went to a baby shower and I did a stand up set. And I tr- I told this edgy joke, which had a a race based punchline. It did not go over well at all. But, you know, you got to take your bruises and take your lumps. So I just sort of did stand up randomly. But really, my family was very supportive. My mom was like, all right, if that's what you want to do. Nobody threw up a barrier to get in my way. I was always kind of a goofy, goofy kid. I was never really good at sports or anything. And my mom uh, put me in wrestling, but I was like a little too intense. Like I wouldn't lose. So I would just like, I would kind of become vicious. So she's like, all right, Andy, you can't do any, any sports. So, I mean, being the goofy, funny kid was kind of, I guess, maybe who I already was, but you know, that was a long time ago. I can't really remember. Again, I didn't have a personality, so who knows? So when you were in high school with all these architect kids, did they think, were, did they think you were funny? Were you like the only funny one out of the group of them? No, they were way funnier than me. I've never been the funniest. There was another kid named Andy Slagle, another Andy, and he was way funnier than me. There was another guy named Anthony, um, I forget his last name, but he like he did a speech uh, at our prom when we were about to graduate, and it was kind of like a stand-up set. He killed it. I had a lot of way funnier friends. I just gravitated towards those kind of people. Dude, I have no idea what people hung out with me. I don't think I was particularly interesting. I was just mostly like, obsessed with a girl that lived like across the way and just like what she wouldn't it was unreciprocated love and i'd walk back all sad and like look at the moon that was pretty much my high school experience looking at the moon feeling rejected and then laughing with architects was your yeah. experience well, well and the band kids and i really sort of hopped around a lot i had out with the band kids but i never played an instrument uh i took a semester of drama loved it didn't really do anything with that and I, then I hung out with some cool kids that like hung out under the stairs. And, you know, we were like skateboarders, but none of us skateboarded. So I just had lots of identity crises and sort of popped around. But I, I would say, well, would, would you say your epiphany at your college orientation was when your life crisis or your identity crisis was solved? Totally. I mean, I, I sort of picked a path that I have, I, I want to say path, but I don't think I mean that because you can't pick a path. You sort of pick a direction and you stumble in that direction. And that's what I did pretty much that point forward. So even if I've done things that I may not have expected to do, and I've done a lot of those, you sort of fall in the direction of the things you want to be. Or like, you know, you have a feeling of this is good. This is a thing that I can use later to meet my final goal of whatever this is. And, you know, some people, I guess, are born with a little bit more opportunity in that regard. Other people aren't. And you just sort of have to do the best with what you have around you and try to build something and move in the direction of your dreams. When you were in college, what type of things did you do in order to help you move in the direction um, for your dream? Well, uh, I took a political science class and I met a teacher who I really liked named Dr. Thomas Neasley. He was a really smart guy. And he was also kind of like an edgy dude. Like he'd always like 
do things that were like a little too much and other teachers would get mad at him. And I was like, fuck yeah, dig it. And uh, he, and he would like give us awesome books and like really challenge us to think about things in different ways, which I liked because I was like, well, again, these are my heroes, Colbert and John Stewart, and they know so much about the world. They have, so, they can always like take a terrible event and help make it palatable or help understand it and help understand it at a deeper, more human level. And I love that. So learning that was great. And then I decided that, well, uh, I like read a, a lot about them and Colbert did improv comedy. So I went to my computer, I Googled improv comedy Atlanta, found a place called Dabs Garage Theater. And I was like, okay, let me go check out a show there. I went and I saw a show and it was the most fun I'd ever had. I immediately saw it and I was one of those audience members who said, I could do that and I'd be better than them. <laughs> so I immediately signed up for a class and that basically has been uh, one of the biggest catalysts in me getting involved and meeting so many of my best friends, so many of the connections that I've used to like help grow my career, I've met in my level one improv class. When when you went to that first Dad's Garage show, was that really your first exposure to live comedy? Well, you know, I'm trying to think. I might have been to a stand-up show. Like, I think I loved – you know what? No, it's not. I went and I saw Dimitri Martin when he did a show in town, and it was great because I went and I talked to him afterwards, and Mitch Hedberg had recently passed away, another comedian I loved, and – he talked to me very candidly about that. He signed my arm, which I asked him to do because I was a weird kid. Uh, but I think that might have been the only other st live comedy show that I'd seen up until that point. So, yeah, otherwise it would have just been concerts. And so actually seeing a improv show in a theater in town and like, oh, my God, there are these people not far away from me who do this all the time. I was like, hell, yeah, sign me up. I'm totally going to do this. Was improv more impactful to your comedy career than stand-up was? Well, okay, so I, w I started doing improv, and I made all these great friends. And I'm doing a lot of improv, and I find that, like, you know, they have, they have these big shows, and I would, you know, I, I had to volunteer in order to get money off classes because I was really poor, you know? So I would see shows all the time. And I started, like, loving all these people. First off, they let me come and, like, be part of this cool group, and they were so funny. So it became a group that I, was, I just really loved. I would get excited to go hang out there. Like I'd get there really early for shows I'm even volunteering for, just wait in my car because I'm, I'm just pumped about it. Now, uh, and then it was also a thing where I wasn't having to work my ass off to like find a place to do stand-up. Like if you grow up in Marietta, I mean, there might be better places now, but at the time there was really no options to pursue that. So this was something I found. Now, later I ended up doing stand-up a little bit more, but I, at that point, we, we had started founding an improv company, and now we're doing all this work, and I'm taking all these classes, and it became a thing where I have to focus my efforts, and I decided that improv was more fun for me, so I put my efforts into that, and um, actually the reason I really uh, decided to kind of take a break from stand-up it was just a very personal experience for me, but I had went up to New York to take an improv workshop, like a three-week intensive at the Magnet Theater with Armando Diaz, and I was having an incredible time up there. I'm like 22 years old, and I was having so much fun and just like learning about like the comedy scene up there, 
And then I had a friend from class who and me and her kind of were dating a little bit. And she introduced me to one of her, a couple of her friends who were stand-ups. And these were the most bitter people I had ever met in my life. The thing about stand-up comedy is if you have a great stand-up show, it's like you did a bump of coke. You feel like you're the best. You're the str- like your ideas are great, man. You kick ass and you're the best. If you have a bad stand-up show, it is the most soul-crushing experience. Like they didn't like me as a person. Now, of course, as a stand-up, you get over that and you can grow. Uh, I, however, just sort of was meeting this bitter person, realized how much fun I had. Just because even if you have a bad improv show. Even if you have the worst improv show, and I've had terrible improv shows, you at least have a person you can then have a beer with and talk about how hilariously bad that was. Mm-hmm. So the com- camaraderie really is what uh, attracted me and what kept me for so long. Talk a little bit about how you started founding your own improv troupe, and was it because you weren't getting stage time at Dad's Garage, so you decided, hey, I'm going to start my own thing? Well, you know, you just kind of have to be open to opportunities. So I was getting really into doing improv, and a group at Dad's Garage at the time, it was a smaller theater, and they didn't have as much opportunity. So there was a group called the Nonsemble, which were kind of like the up-and-comers at Dad's, and they got a spot at this crazy venue called Relapse Theater, which was sort of this anything-goes artist commune deal that was in Midtown, not far away. And on Tuesday nights, they're like, hey, we might need some people. So before our level four grad show, we got to actually do a show. Now, there were like three people in the audience, but we got to do a show. And this is like really the stage that was made out of an old billboard material with a carpet on it. And it's yeah. like brick walls. And it was just kind of this really uh, seedy looking place. Uh, and then, well, we were invited by a guy named John Carr, who was working at Dad's. However, when we started like performing with them he was like oh well we have a little bit more space so me and all my friends from my improv class started doing it and eventually john got busy and all those dads people had to go back to dads and he said do you guys want to take over this night that we have we said yeah automatic feeder was the name at the time it wasn't even our name but it was the group that was gifted to us so we just kept doing it and through doing that we met other improvisers at this place, Relapse Theater. It turns out there was a huge community there, and I had no idea. There was a group called Jack Pie, which had so many students, so I started taking classes there. The guy who owned the theater, Bob Wood, had a group called Two Year Old CIs. We would see those shows. They did a show right after ours called Richard Kickers, where anybody in town at all, even if you had no experience, you didn't even know what improv was, could come up and do a show for free. And I was seeing all these people, and they were blowing me away. They were so funny, and they were so nice. And it was what I will say about Bob Wood, who ran or runs Relapse Theater, but definitely at that time, it was literally like, you know, this place is a place for comedy. You can make what you want with it. So we just kept working at it. We started doing workshops every weekend on Sunday mornings. We eventually started doing weekends. Uh, we do other workshops later on Tuesdays or like on Mondays, I believe. So we were just doing workshops all the time, working together. And we were doing shows for zero people or two people or three people. and But we were really serious about it, and we kept doing that. And then after a year or two, it started to get more people. We started doing better shows, bringing in coaches. And eventually, we had a full-fledged thing going on where we had three shows a week, and we wrote an education program. So now we're teaching classes. And it became this really huge, awesome thing that uh, 
I mean, I couldn't do it alone. I had like a lot of help from a lot of really good friends of mine that I still know to this day that like run the company with me, like Bill Worley and Sarah Turner, Jan, Kelly. Like we had this really great team that just kept doing these things and we would get gigs and go out. So it became a company that we eventually had to make, which was confusing for us because we didn't know what we were doing. But it was a really wonderful experience. And you really do, I think, at a certain point in your career, have to take ownership and not wait for somebody to say, hey, you can do this. Yeah, for sure. And let me let me ask you, which do you like doing better? Do you like teaching somebody how to do improv, you know, teaching students, or do you like actually performing? Which one do you like? Um, I think they, I think it's like that they help each other because performing is wonderful, but eventually you're like, what the hell am I doing? But when you teach, you get a cement, a structure of by repeating the things that you say. You eventually learn how to critique things and understand things and develop your taste. And then when you perform, you get to work on actually being able to achieve those things. To me, they're, they're, like, they're symbiotic. You need both. Uh, I mean, other people are different. I talked to Colin Mockery when he was in town and asked if he ever taught improv. And he said, I can't teach what I do. It's like, oh. You know, people are different in the way that they work. I'm a very analytical person. I enjoy talking about things I enjoy studying because it's something that I can do, you know, as opposed to some bigger comedy ideas, be funny. That's not necessarily possible, but you can kind of understand foundational levels. And that's, to me, they're both very important, but other people might find a different thing. So for you, what do you think is the most important aspect of improv? Mm. Uh, I think having fun is really important. You need to be doing a thing that you enjoy. Uh, if Now, there's a lot of things that branch off of that, right? Like, you need to do something that's real. You need to do something that connects with people, that has, like, an honest truth to it. But that being said, if I'm just doing a scene about, like, having a stepbrother who's addicted to heroin, that's not necessarily funny. So you have to be having fun. You know, you have to be able to... You have to be able to be spontaneous to surprise yourself. But, you know, just like... Farting it might be surprising, but it's not necessarily going to be hilarious, you know? So you have to sort of understand that, like, you need to have good taste in what is fun and what is funny, and you need to find ways to develop or hone the skills that you have or the personality traits and gain a little bit of self-knowledge and figure out how to be the most relaxed, high-energy version of you on stage. Do you have any scenes that you've ever done that stand out in your mind as, like, the best scene you've ever performed? Um, man, that's hard. So doing comedy for a while, especially improv, and I've done a lot of improv shows in the last uh, 10 years, you, you'll you have great shows and you'll forget about them the next day. And uh, you'll remember moments, but you won't necessarily remember scenes. I will say this. There was a group I was with for a while at Relapse called uh, Ground Control. And what we would do is we would improvise a science fiction movie. The fun part about improvising movies is you end up remembering a lot more of them because they have sort of like a contained story structure. Mm-hmm. There was about four of us in this workshop, and we did this show for no one. And at the very end, we were like, that was the best thing we've ever done. It was just yeah. such a solid show. It was super funny. We were super on top of our thing. And it was, and nobody saw it. But that's usually the case. The best thing you'll never be seen for. 
I did have a really fun show where I played uh, Dracula's son once, and the prop teeth I had kept one of them kept falling out, so my character kept dying throughout the show over and over again, and I just remember it being hilarious as hell. But that's about that's it for me. So when you're up there performing <laughs> and like something goes wrong like that, and the improv scene might be failing a little bit, it's not getting laughs. What do you do to save a scene? What are your tactics? Well, first off, breathe. You can't uh, you can't start flop sweating and expect that you can just uh, beat it. You have to keep your cool, and you have to say, "What is this thing missing?" Chances are, it's either missing like a truthful element, like somebody may have said something super bananas, but nobody's reacting to it. We or you, so you might need to go and you might need to react to that thing, or they might have like a very honest thing but it might not be interesting. So then you go and you find an interesting way to build on it. But with improv, it's all about finding what's missing and finding out what has been built. Like what uh, improv is driving a car full, forward at full speed while only looking in the rear view mirror. We're only building off of the things that have already been said. And we want to try to connect the earliest suggestions in the scene those should be where our jokes come from. Like the funny things that we saw before, but we haven't necessarily seen incorporated yet. So it's about being able to, you know, breathe, really listen, and be the best observer you can be. And then you can react, reincorporate, and just really see what's in front of you. So in your scenes, do you tend to call back as much as possible? Yeah, or, you know, not necessarily if you have to call back, because you might need to just build something. And you need to build it off of that first thing. You know, like a lot of times when you're a new improviser, you'll come out and you'll say something and you'll forget it immediately. So you'll say another thing and you'll forget it immediately. And then you'll be like, okay, now what do I do? You know, those first two lines were easy, but now what? But if you just paid attention to that first thing you said, and maybe you said the same thing again with a little bit more emotion and importance, you might be able to find a point of view. You might be able to find a perspective of an actual human being and play a person that's believable. And if you do that, people will connect to it. And you can't expect to be funny right away, because if people laugh right away, chances are you've built something that's, um, you know, hollow. you built something you can't really grow. you got to have meat. It should be like a plate of food. You have to have your meat. You have to have your vegetables. You have to have all the parts of a meal in order for it to work. You can't just have candy. You can't just have people giggling the entire time. Or if you can, I mean, kudos to you, but that's a very hard way to play, and you better be the smartest person in the world. Did you just come up with that analogy on the spot? No, man. I've been teaching a lot, so I got analogies for fucking days. Because I was like, huh. Like, as you were explaining it in my head, I'm, like, picturing a plate, and then I have my piece of steak, and then, you know, some broccoli. And I'm like, this is good. And I, wow. Good for you for coming up with that, because I really like that. No, no problem, man. Take it. Use it. Bring it out into the world. So tell me a little bit about your time at CNN, because I think that's a unique mm. stop, especially for a comedian. So what was it like working at CNN? What exactly did you do? Okay, so uh, the first job I got at CNN, I was a tour guide, which was, uh, it was both the worst job I've ever had. I would dread <laughs> going to this job so much that I would be after shows and people would ask, Andy, what are you doing tomorrow? And I would just like look off into the distance. Like, I remember getting my leg eaten by a whale and just, like, shudder to myself, like, like having to push it out of my brain. 
the job was awful. For six hours a day, you would have to talk. You would have to say 273 points uh, about the about CNN. And if you like missed four, somebody would have to retrain you, and then you could potentially get fired. So you, basically, there was no room to improvise. You had to say this really boring, often inaccurate script, and <laughs> and that sucked. And you would do it for 45 people. Often you would have a large group of them that don't speak English because CNN's everywhere. So you'll get Chinese tourists, you'll get African tourists, you'll get Indian tourists, you get people from uh, France and Germany, and it's a huge, ridiculous thing. And you're talking for an hour at a time. So the other problem is I could not do a bad show. I was very self-conscious. I really needed to do a good show because this is like what I'm doing comedy for. So I would work so hard to be entertaining and funny and fun. I lost my voice immediately when I first started, but I eventually got better at projecting. So it taught me a lot of stage presence since I didn't go to school for theater. That was very important. And it just taught me how to be engaging even when my subject matter wasn't. And by the way, I will make this little, uh, thing. I will make this little plug for myself. Out of the 11 people department, I got uh, 50% of the comment cards. So, and they were all, Andy's great. So I had this stack of thousands of comment cards after my year there. Uh, that was really fun. But I eventually got out of that because I saw a buddy from college working in the studio as a video journalist, so I got that job. And that is the other entry-level job where you print scripts for anchors, you put microphones and IFBs on anchors, you uh, sit in the control rooms and you run the teleprompter manually, which means that I'm watching a little screen with the anchor talking, and then I have to you know, scroll it by hand as fast as they're speaking and that got that was an incredibly stressful job sure. <laughs> you get with like little training and you have to just you have to do it right otherwise everything's your fault right. so yeah dude it was that was intense and then sometimes you'd be prompting for somebody like miles away like you know in like some small town in america so there's a delay so, like, the carrot on the words that you're seeing is actually, like, in a delay where it's, like, up at the top of the screen. So you're just scrolling, hoping, hoping that you're not messing up real bad. So uh, I did that for a while. I eventually convinced somebody to – and during that time, I'm, like, making videos of my friends where I'm sketch writing meetings and trying to keep growing our careers that way. Uh, I, I was at CNN for a while. I uh, – became I would freelance with other departments. I started working for CNN Special Projects, which made sponsored videos. So I was a producer for that. And then I, uh, a new person came into HLN, uh, an executive that used to work at Nickelodeon, and I wanted to impress them because I was like, well, they're trying to make a social media network. I'm a young guy. So I started making some videos and talking to my friends that I had met through improv. And I, and I met a producer there, and we shot a video together. The president liked it, and then he brought me into audition for the show called The Daily Share that he was making. And I eventually, as an associate producer, was working with all these. I was like on the show, but they didn't have to pay me because I was like the guy who came up and started from the bottom. And then they brought in all these like really high-paid talent from New York and San Francisco and L.A. And then it was like also me having to do way more work because I would have to pitch things and then write them and then edit them and shoot them in a day, whereas these other people had to do none of that. So it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty intense experience. But, uh, man, I'm telling you, dude, you got to kind of, you got to put yourself out there. You got to fake it till you make it. 
and I got a lot of I got a lot of education with that. Did you ever, you know, meet like any of the famous people from CNN, like Anderson Cooper or Don Lemon? Did you meet any of them? Well, Anderson Cooper, you would see every once in a while. Uh, he was mostly in New York, but Don Lemon, I actually worked on his show for a while. So when you're the floor director, that means that you're like the guy in front, like by the camera. He's like counting down, like five, four, three, and you point at them. And I would work on his show, so it'd be just me and him in the studio. And uh, the interesting thing about Don Lemon is he likes the studio incredibly cold, like 55 degrees. Oh so it'd be something like 10 p.m. and you're just you're the only one up there. You're freezing. He's freezing. He's having to blow his nose all the time because he's basically giving himself pneumonia. It was a really weird thing. I mean, Nancy Grace worked right in my office uh, for HLN. So, yeah, you just kind of – I worked at Robin Mead's show on several occasions. You meet random people doing that, too. It's like I met R.L. Stein. I, you know, like I gave him a microphone. That was really cool. And then the mayor came when uh, Atlanta's roads shut down, and everybody was yelling at him. So you, I got to meet Janelle Monet. I got to meet Run DMC. You just sort of meet really random folks that way. So what's your coolest story or most unique story that you have from your, your working experiences at CNN? Oh, man, that's – I don't know, dude. I've done – I did a lot of stuff. But, uh, like, I stripped uh, for a video we were making, for, like, when Magic Mike 2 was coming out. And I, like, went to this, like, really seedy strip club and did that. Um, I definitely think that one of my most exciting experiences was this was when I was first a VJ. I'm working on this lady, Suzanne Malveaux's show, and she's like a very respected journalist. So this is the first time I'm flooring her show. So I give her a microphone and her IFB, which is the earpiece, so she hears everything. And she's wearing a like one-piece dress. So you like they unzip the dress, and then I dropped like the earpiece and the microphone down. And then she she was kind of short, so she had them hooked onto her boots. And then she was sitting on the chair talking. And then right in the beginning. Uh, she's like putting in her ear and the director starts yelling at me like, she can't hear, why the hell can't you hear? Andy, fix it! So like, this is as somebody else is talking, so we're on air at the time, but they're just like not showing her face. So I'm like running over, I'm trying to figure it out, I have no idea why she can't hear. So it turns out, by the way, she's sitting in front of a plexiglass desk that her leg kicked and it unplugged her earpiece. So... I had to climb underneath the plexiglass desk. I do not know this lady at all. And I had to reach up her skirt because she's like talking and on air and then plug it into her boots. And right when they're cutting one of the cameras, like, Andy, get out of there. So then I had to like roll out uh, of screen right before they took it. And my heart was like a hammer, dude. It was nuts. I just remember being like, I'm like, oh, my God, I got to take a nap. Or they flew a drone in the studio one time with four people. and It was just insane because the, the guy didn't know how to fly the drone. So the drone's like going back and forth. It's blowing scripts off the desk. The crane camera jib is trying to catch it, but it smashes into the set and it's like breaking stuff. It was like, oh, my God, what's happening? It was just things like that constantly. So I don't I can't even tell you what the craziest moment is because that whole thing was just an insane situation. I, I have to say that might be I think anybody has ever told me in my entire life. Dude, it was bananas. And then she was just like, all right, bye. And I was just like, what are you talking about? That was so crazy. Yeah. Wow. Well, no, that is a lot of good comedy material. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you learn a lot, man. And well, that's the whole thing. I think just like a big part of it, doing that is like you got to sort of make 
make your life manifest that fun stuff. Right. Yeah, for sure. How did you transition from CNN to cartoon? Yeah. So that was uh, that was happenstance. So I could tell that uh, I I was working at HLN and I enjoyed the experience, but I could tell that it wasn't going to last. I'd already been through three rounds of layoffs with HLN in the time I was a video journalist working for them. So by the time I was actually like a HLN paid employee and like making my pieces and being on air, you know, I was just like I should probably pay attention to you know figuring this out. Now, I should mention that in that first improv class I told you about, the first person I met was a writer named Kevin Berry who worked on Cartoon Network's website. When I first was moving into Atlanta, Kevin and I had befriended a lady named Molly who was a old vice president of Cartoon Network who had, was going to move to Minnesota. She had a house. So Kevin and I moved into that house. That was the first house I ever lived in. And then part of the deal for living in that house was we got a dog named Grandpa was this incredibly old chow who was blind, he was missing an eye, the other had cataracts, and he was completely deaf. So this dog was super old, couldn't see, couldn't hear, and would just live his own life. He'd like walk around the house and bounce and run into stuff until he figured out where he was going. He would snore like a human being and like fart like a dirty hobo. It was crazy. But like we raised this dog and we like lived there together, right? So I had been applying for Cartoon Network jobs for a while, and I eventually got an interview, and it was a nine-month interview process, but when I got there, I met a guy who was a creative director for Cartoon Network, and eventually it came up that he knew Molly, and he was like, oh, did you ever meet her dog, Grandpa? And I was like, I took care of Grandpa for three years. And he was like, what? So that, I think, that, that really helped. And, uh, and yeah, the interview process was crazy. I met with a whole bunch of people for a very long time. And uh, they, I guess, liked my stuff. So the crazy thing was uh, the executive who hired me got let go. And that was when I was going on Thanksgiving vacation. And I knew that he was pretty much my only, like, ally at the place. And that the people that worked there were going to be, they would have very easily thrown me out. So <laughs> I... Uh, I, I was like, I was real nervous. I was like, I'm going to get fired. And as soon as I got back the day that like all of a sudden nobody's sending me an email about the, like asking about my piece for air, nobody's getting back to me. I'm like, oh my God, I'm an empty desk. Right. And then I got a call from the recruiter that said, Hey, they want to give you the job at Cartoon Network. And that was just like the biggest, most palpable, like sigh of relief. It felt like, yeah, it just like felt lightheaded. And I, uh, and then I started and that was uh, a couple years ago. And it's uh, pretty great. I'm not going to lie. What exactly do you do at Cartoon Network? I do a lot of, uh, I do a lot of stuff. So I write. Um, I'm part of the on-air creative group. I am a writer for them. And we do everything around a show. So, like, we, have, we bring in shows or we have show teams that create shows. And those are people that are, like, you know, kind of uh, – that's, like, a sort of every show is a little different like that. I actually work for Cartoon Network, so I create ad campaigns, and I do everything around shows. So I'll, like, make um, – we will, like, make uh, animated things for, like, Cartoon Network's 25th year anniversary. My group will make that, or I was just um, this weekend up in Comic-Con, and we also will make sizzle reels, which are like, hey, give Cartoon Network money. So I spent all weekend interviewing children about, like, why they like Cartoon Network and, like, cool costumes and stuff. 
but like, yeah, we just make basically uh, ad campaigns for shows and ad campaigns for the network and stuff. So it's a lot of really random little things over and over again. I asked you this with CNN, but I want to know this with Cartoon Network. What's been your most unique moment so far working there? Ooh, man. Uh, it's really, uh, let me see, my most unique moment working at Cartoon Network. Uh, I I guess I've done, uh, I've done a few, it's just like the whole thing itself is really surreal, you know, because you will like, you just call like these like famous voiceover talents. Uh, I got to work with uh, the guy who did Porky Pig, which was really weird. And I got to meet uh, Tom Kenny, who did the voice of SpongeBob. And I got to meet John DiMaggio, uh, who does, you know, Bender and all this stuff. And you just get to hang out with them because you're like Cartoon Network. And so like you're their people, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like just kind of hanging out with these people. Like I got to meet all the I got to go to a party and hang out with uh, everybody on Steven Universe. That was really fun. I just have been able to like kind of make a lot of really cool random friends and connections to places that I never would have expected. And it's also I get to work with animation companies. So it's like my job is they're like, Andy, do you like this? <laughs> and then I just gonna be like, no. And then or do this. And that's my whole job. You know, it's really bananas. You find it difficult because I, I, I'm realizing now, you know, during the day, you have to kind of amuse children, but at night mm-hmm. at the improv shows, you have to amuse adults. So do you find it difficult to make that transition? No, I mean, because uh, adults are just grown up children and <laughs> children are just young adults, you know, like that's the thing is like you can't expect them to be too different. Kids are way smarter than we give them. And we give them like credit for and adults just want to be kids they wish they were you know it's just hard because we don't have energy and like our life starts sucking and things don't go our way but in reality like when you teach an improv class to adults like they're, you're just having to reteach them how to be children so i i like it a lot actually it's like, really fun because what it does is it lets you sort of see both sides of human nature and play them off of each other are you involved with Adult Swim, or is that another department? Adult Swim is weird. It's like across the street. So, like, I've um, so the the one of my good friends really helped make my connection at HLN, and so we work together there. And now she is a producer or manager at Adult Swim, and then I'm working over at Cartoon Network. So I have that connection. I have a bunch of friends over there, but for the most part, they're kind of they're their own separate thing. Uh, the guy who runs Adult Swim, Mike Lazo, was just like. Uh, sometime before I got there, like, you know what, we're doing us, you guys do you, and just kind of separated. So it's just a, it's a very different thing, but um, I've worked with them on several different occasions, and it's like, uh, I mean, I love Adult Swim, they do really interesting things, but it's like, I'm like the kid's guy, you know what I mean? So it's like, it, it is a different distinction. However, we all will like report to the same bosses, so then we'll go to meetings, and we'll have parties together and stuff. Um, but for the most part, my projects, like, I'll run projects for like the Amazing World of Gumball or OKKO or these other shows that we have on our network, and then they'll have stuff for their network. Okay, so they're really separate worlds. Yeah, pretty much. But also, we share similar bosses and stuff. That's the thing about Turner is like it's got all these networks, but they don't really talk to each other. And that was something that was really surprising me. But I mean, you can figure it out. It just takes time. Yeah. Well, I, look, I learned more about Cartoon Network than I knew. I didn't know how it worked. 
But growing up, I man, I it all the time. Yeah. I mean, did, That's did awesome. you? Uh, you mentioned earlier. I think you said you watched Nickelodeon more, or did you watch Cartoon Network growing up? I watched a little bit, honestly. We really didn't get a cable until I was a lot older. So, like, I would watch a couple Cartoon Network shows. I love Toonami. I love like Dragon Ball Z and any sort of fighting show like that. Because again, I'm I'm a violent person as a kid. But uh, for the most part, I didn't really watch it all that much. So, like, it was a thing. Like, you know, I'd watch Aqua Teen when I was like hanging out with friends in high school. But uh, for the most part, man, I was all like Colbert and everything. So it really sort of uh, just. It, I've learned a lot about it now, obviously, and when I was applying, I watched everything. But no, and as a kid, I really didn't. You know, when, when I was a kid, I had a podcast when I was little. It was called Kid Power Radio. And on that show, I got to talk to the guy who voiced Meatball for Aqua Teen uh, Hunger Force. Uh, oh, really? That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, and I yeah. just remember, because it was such, like, I was young. I was, like, in fourth grade when this happened. And I just remember, like, none of my friends knew what the show was because it, yeah, like, elementary schoolers weren't watching it. And, like, I didn't really know what the show was. All I knew was that this man voiced food. That's all I knew. Yeah. Yeah. Dave Willis, I believe, was the person you talked to. Yeah. I, that name, yeah. I mean, the name sounds familiar. So I bet that's who it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's one of the writers for that show. Uh, yeah. That's awesome, man. He's a cool dude. Yeah. I mean, I remember it, and I had him say in his meatball voice that he loved being on that show. It's the memory I still have. Never even thought about it. Oh man! Well, if I see him in the cafeteria, I'm gonna have to let him know. That's awesome. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So let me ask you, Andy. Um, from where you are today, what's in your career? What's the goal that you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, man. Uh, I basically okay. So I'll tell you. So the way I got here is kind of what I continue to expect to do. I'm working on like cartoon pitches and like creating those right now. But uh, I've kind of gotten to a weird point in my life where like I'm doing a lot of the things that I had never thought I'd be doing. You know what I mean? So like I'm going to an um, uh, improv festival in Portugal next year, which I'm thrilled about because I've been wanting to do an international improv festival. But I mean, I get paid to do fun things. You know, it's not bad. So my hope is to just, I want to start creating more unique content that has a little bit longer evergreen shelf life in order to like, you know, bring the happiness to people that I experienced when I was growing up and watching shows like Strangers with Candy or whatnot. So I really don't know, hopefully change the world in a better way. But in reality, I'm just going to kind of try to make a fertile ground around me of friends and connections and try to build things together and see what grows and foster those things. That's usually, that's, that's kind of the way I've been approaching my career at this stage is, you know, you never know what's going to be, but there's a lot of opportunities around you. You just have to open your eyes and look and put your efforts in the right direction. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And so for my final question for you, this is a question that I ask every single guest. So you're, you're in good company when you answer this. Um, but mm. I want to know if you could give one piece of advice to someone who eventually wants to be in your shoes one day, what piece of advice mm-hmm. would you uh, Patience and persistence. You never know who's going to be the person who's going to open a door for you or teach you a skill that you might need. But the only 
mistake you can make is who you work with. Now, that doesn't mean burn bridges, but find the people that help bring out the best parts of you and help make help you be the best version of yourself. And if people are getting in your way, you need to find a way to walk around them. And you don't do it with any animosity. You don't do it uh, by being better than anyone. You do it by being a fast learner and non-threatening. And if people were more willing to put in the work to create things, to get themselves better, and less time thinking that they're the best and that person's out to get me, it's going to shave a lot of time off of the climb you're going to have to get to wherever you're trying to get. I really, I really like that. And from, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of comedians so far. And when you talk to so many, eventually the advice starts overlapping. But that is a piece of advice that I have not heard yet, just to be patient. And I really like that. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who are going to get to where you want to be at younger ages, you know, and you can't be upset about that because you can't, you don't want to jump the gun. You, you got to just realize with everything, you know, preparation uh, plus opportunity is what luck is. So the only way you're going to have a lucky break is if you're prepared and that opportunity presents itself. But I've blown plenty of opportunities in my life because I just wasn't ready. So the best thing you can do is just really grind it out and be that person that when the opportunity does eventually present itself, you can seize it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And for uh, you, Andy, if people want to see you perform or maybe learn more about what work you're doing with automatic improv or anything, how can they find you? Well, you know, I'm on the internet. You can uh, follow me at Andy Diamonds on on that, uh, on the Twitter and the Instagram. Or you can potentially see me at Dad's Garage. I'm usually there three nights a week. I'm going to be uh, in Invasion Christmas Carol later this year. So you can come check that out. Otherwise, if you watch Cartoon Network, I'd really greatly appreciate it because that helps me get extra money and my bonus. Otherwise, uh, yeah, hit me up. I'm always doing the funny around town. Uh, so, uh, I'm also somewhat approachable, so feel free to come right over and talk to me. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to continue the conversation. Yeah, well, the next time I'm at Dad's, if you're there, I'll be sure to come up and say hello. All right, yeah, sounds great, Max. All right, well, thank you so much, Andy, for being on the show, and thank you for listening. Remember, you can like our Facebook page at Talking Late Night. You can find us at our website at www.talkinglatenight.com, and you can find us on iTunes where you can also leave us a five-star review. All right, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 